Good morning. Well, we had a great series this summer in the parables of Jesus, but today we're beginning a new series. We are going to be studying the book of Ephesians over the next number of months, and I'm really excited about it. I think the more I look at Ephesians, the more I think if I only had one book of the New Testament to summarize the Christian faith and what it means to live as the people of God in response to what God has done for us, I think at the top of the list would be the book of Ephesians. It's just a marvelous description by Paul of the gospel that he articulates in a really, really profound way. The book uh, can be summarized this way. I've heard it summarized, and it kind of helps me think about how it flows. Sit, walk, stand. First three chapters talk about what God has done for us, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places, and all that he's done to redeem us and call us and bring us into the kingdom and seat us with him. Sit with him. And then chapter 4 begins this way. It says, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walk. How do we walk now as these new creations that God has made when we give our lives to him? And that continues through chapter 6, verse 9. And then it says, we fight the spiritual battle, so stand firm and put on the armor of God. Stand, sit, walk, stand. It's a good summary of the book and reminder that we begin with what God has done for us. Out of that, we learn to walk and we learn to deal with the spiritual battles that we face every day. It's a fabulous book for understanding who we are in Christ. I wear contacts. I've worn them for many, many years. I am really, really nearsighted. Without those, I can't see much of anything. Well, I think of that in terms of the book of Ephesians. I think it's the lens through which we can see God's hand at work in a world where it appears at times He's not even there. So as we study the book of Ephesians, my prayer is that we will have our eyes open to seeing both worlds, our world and God's world, more accurately. Paul in the book of Ephesians prays a couple of major prayers. And in those prayers, he prays for several things. I want to highlight a couple of those. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, he says this, that the God, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul's desire for the Ephesians is that they would have their eyes opened to know Him more fully than they ever have. Another prayer in chapter 3, he prays this way, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, reading from verse 17, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses Knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So Paul prays that we might know him and that we might understand the fullness of his love. But today we're going to look at another aspect of his prayer as we look at Acts chapter 19. In chapter 1 and verse 19 of Ephesians in his prayer he says this, I pray that you may know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. As we look at Acts 19 this morning, it's a reminder to us that, you know, at times I think in this world we can feel like God's power is not evident. Lord, where is your power? Sometimes it can feel like evil is winning. Ray Steadman used to like to say this old limerick, Our race had a splendid beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We hope that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. (laughs) In our own lives and in our culture, we can feel that way, can't we? That somehow the other side's winning. God, where is your power? I need your power in my life. We need it in our culture. We need it in our world. Where is the power of God at work today? Well, as we look at Acts chapter 19, the founding of the church in Ephesus, we'll see the power of God displayed in some really dramatic ways. And I think we'll learn from those how God wants to display his power in us and around us today in our world. So let's pray and then we'll look at the text together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your power is available to us, as Paul prays. May we, Lord, see your power in a fresh way today so we might have eyes opened to understand how you are at work in us and around us every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Acts chapter 19, to set the context, Paul is on his third missionary journey. He arrives in Ephesus around 53 A.D. He stays three years to teach and establish this church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a huge city of the Roman Empire. It was a powerful city. It was a mixture of all kinds of religions, all kinds of perspectives, magic, spells. It was just a wild, eclectic place. And Paul shows up in this place where the center of their worship was Artemis. Artemis was one of the Greek Roman gods, some called, sometimes called Diana, but it was Artemis to the Ephesians. And there was a massive temple there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Huge, beautiful place that took 120 years to build. And in this place, there was worship, and people came from all over the known world to worship Artemis and to see this amazing temple that had been built. Now, Ephesus had been a major port, and that's where it got most of its money and how it was established. But over the years, the port, the river Caister, had come and silted in and actually filled in further and further out into the Mediterranean so that by New Testament times, the city of Ephesus was actually several miles from the coast. Because of that, they didn't have such a dynamic trade going on anymore, and so the temple of Artemis became more and more important as a tourist attraction. People came from all over to come and see this mighty temple. So that kind of sets the context for you. This temple of Artemis was the major, probably the largest bank of the known world. People came to put their money into this temple under the protection of Artemis. It was a place where all kinds of worship went on. People came from all over. So we'll talk more about that later. But in this place, as Paul shows up, the power of God gets displayed in the secular, pagan, heathen place 
God works in a mighty way. And I want to talk about four ways I see in this passage that God's power is displayed as Paul comes to Ephesus. First of all, God's power changes lives. God's power is displayed in the way it changes lives. Let me read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. So Paul comes into Ephesus. He meets this group of guys and he says, Hey, you appear to be disciples, but, but something's not quite right here. What were you baptized into? What are you, what are you disciples of? And they said, John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist's message was he came preaching a baptism of repentance. He said, hey, repent. Put off your sin. Turn to God. Purify your lives because Messiah is coming. And he's coming right away. And boy, when he comes, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Messiah is almost here. So that's all they'd heard. They had somehow heard that message, probably traveled through Israel, heard that message, and then left and never heard that Jesus had actually come and died. He was the Savior of the world. So Paul says, hey, I'm here to tell you the rest of the story. And so he does, and he tells them the good news that Jesus has come, and they are excited. And then he lays hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that happens a few times in Acts. But it's not the norm. When people receive Christ, when you pray to receive Jesus, the norm is you receive the Holy Spirit at that point. But God was doing something very important. He was teaching the people of Ephesus that Paul was God's messenger. He had the authority to speak the truth. And so by laying on hands, they received the Holy Spirit. They realized, wow, this guy is the guy that we need to listen to if we're going to find out about Jesus. So they receive the Holy Spirit and their lives are changed. See, when we put our faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. Whether you feel different or not, your life is changed. At that point, you are a new creation. Everything's different. Now they displayed that by says, speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now again, that happens a few times in the book of Acts. But it's clearly not the norm for believers. It still happens today, I believe, at times in places when people receive the Holy Spirit, but it's not the norm to be expected that people speak in tongues and prophesy when they receive the Holy Spirit. Here, it was clear evidence of the power of God. Right then, right there. Wow, these guys have received the Holy Spirit. The power of God is here. Their lives are changed. But what should we expect? How does the Holy Spirit demonstrate his power in us and through us as New Testament 
believers today. Well, again, it can happen this way. It happens throughout the world. You hear stories all over the world where kind of at the forefront of where the gospel is going forth in Latin America, in Africa, in China, in India, sometimes there's immediate evidence that the Holy Spirit has come into someone's life. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, you know, here's Paul. He's there. He, he sees this happen. But as he writes the rest of the New Testament, he doesn't say that's what you should expect. He says, here's what you should expect if you want evidence of the Holy Spirit, if you want to look for how the Holy Spirit is working in power. Here's what he says. Let me read from the book of Ephesians. We'll be studying this more in depth later, but Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's wastefulness, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, what does that look like? What does it mean when the Spirit's really obvious in someone's life? He says this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another or submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. Isn't that interesting? He says, hey, you want to know when you're filled with the Spirit, what it looks like? You're encouraging one another in your walks with the Lord, speaking to one another, psalms and hymns. You're making, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You have a heart of worship. You have a heart of thankfulness. You're learning that He's in control and you have a thankfulness for all things. And then you have healthy relationships with others because you are submissive to one another. Those, Paul says, are the real evidences of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in someone's life. He also says in 1 Corinthians 12, the manifestation of the Spirit is spiritual gifts. As you learn to love other people, gifts of serving, of teaching, of giving, of leadership, of wisdom, of knowledge, etc., etc., that's evidence that the power of the Holy Spirit is in you. And then he writes in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, what should we expect in someone's life? What fruit should be evidence? Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. And this is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Character, change life. You see, the power of God displayed in someone's life, what does it look like? A changed character. Learning to trust God over time. Learning to give our lives to Him. Loving others better. Growing in character. Being set free from sin and addictions. That's the power of God at work. Changing lives. That's exciting. I have the opportunity to do premarital counseling, doing weddings, and I met with a couple a while back and for the first time, and it's clear that the young man did not know Jesus. So we talked about that, and he was searching and interested, but really struggling and, you know, wasn't sure, struggling in a lot of ways in his life. And then I met with him a while later, and he came to me and he said, Guess what? I've received Jesus. His life has been changed. He received the Holy Spirit, and, and he's learning to live a whole different life. God's at work in his life. That's the power of God displayed. He's about to be deployed to Afghanistan. But you know what? He's not going alone. He's got the Holy Spirit in him to strengthen him, encourage him, empower him. So the power of God displayed is it's displayed by changed 
lives. Secondly, the power of God is displayed in the way that God's power exposes hearts. Exposes hearts. Acts 19 goes on, verse 8. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them, the Jews, about the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened, were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, the Christian faith, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. By the way, he went to the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, that name means tyrant. Imagine naming your kid tyrant. Think about that. He must have been a pretty strong-willed little kid from right from the beginning, right? Tyrant. But he had the school. Whoever Tyrannus was, he had the school. So Paul started teaching there. And it says he taught for two years. So that, verse 10, all who lived in Asia, the whole province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is awesome. <laughs> Paul goes to the Jews. He teaches them and like he always loved to do because he loved his people. He was Jewish. He loved the Jewish people. He taught for three months, but they finally were so hardened, they said, forget it. Get out of here. We don't want you around here anymore. And that word for hardened is the Greek word scleros. You may have heard the word arterial sclerosis, hardening of the arteries. Well, as Paul taught, they heard the truth. He revealed that they had hardening of the heart. <laughs> you see, they were always hardened, but they thought they were doing fine. But as Paul confronted them with who Jesus was, the reality of Jesus, the power of God exposed the reality of their hearts, how hardened they were. And they reacted in anger and spoke evil of the way. You see, God's word, God's power does that. We think we're doing fine. We can kind of cruise through life feel like life's going well, but we get, get confronted by God's power, by the Word. And what does it do? It reveals our hardness. And then we have a choice. Either we can be broken of that, let Him crush our souls so that we learn to submit and trust Him, or we can shake our fist at God and walk away. But that's what the power of God does. It exposes where our hearts are. It exposes where we are. It exposes the hardening of the heart, like angina, chest pain. Some of you have experienced that. You don't know that you've got hardening of the arteries. But you get the chest pain and it reveals what's going on inside. And then you have a choice. Either I ignore it or I go to the surgeon and get it taken care of. That's what the power of God does. It helps us see we have a choice. Are we going to go to the surgeon, to Jesus, and let him make us new? Or are we going to walk away? I love the, what it says in Hebrews chapter 4 about the word, the power of God in us, as it says this, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Have you noticed that you don't even know your own heart very well? We don't know our own thoughts and intentions. We can't judge ourselves. 
But the Word of God, as we let the power of God work through this living Word, it penetrates, it reveals, it exposes the reality of our hearts. That's why we need the Word so desperately. So God's power changes lives, it exposes our hearts, and then thirdly, God's power defeats evil. Acts 19 goes on, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Wow, that would have been amazing to see, wouldn't it? The words here for handkerchief and apron, they were Paul's work clothes. Remember, he worked as a tent maker, and he describes elsewhere where he worked as a tent maker in Ephesus. And he worked hard on leather and creating things. And, and the handkerchief was a sweat handkerchief. He'd wipe his sweat off, and then he had a dirty apron that he worked in. And people would pick those up, and they'd go, and they'd touch somebody who, were, who was diseased, and they would be set free, and evil spirits would leave. Amazing, the power of God, setting people free, defeating evil. God was clearly showing the people of Ephesus that Jesus is Lord, that he has power, that it's no big deal to defeat evil spirits and defeat the evil of this world. You can take a dirty old sweat cloth (laughs) and the spirits will flee. God has power over evil spirits. Now, you may say, well, I don't see dramatic examples of evil spirits in our culture, in our world. You know, where is it? Why, why doesn't it happen this way? What's, what's going on? If, if God's power is over evil spirits, we don't have them around here, right? Wrong. <laughs> Now, there's plenty of evidence all over the world where, again, the gospel's going forth and other cultures where there's confrontation with evil spirits all the time. I think, this is just me, but this is, I think the reason we don't see more evidence of supernatural confrontation with evil spirits. Now, I will say I've been in situations where I'm convinced there was demon possession, there was clear evidence of demonology going on. But I think the reason we don't see more evidence of that is because Satan's pretty smart. In our scientific modernist thinking, it's a lot more powerful for him. He has more influence if he just lays low. And he influences us in other ways. I think the demonic is evident in a lot of ways in our culture by trapping people in addictions, for example, by different forms of mental illness, by trapping us in resentments, roots of bitterness that eat away at our soul. I think those are suggestions and that's influence of the demonic in our culture and in our lives. I think the demonic is active in our materialistic society by encouraging us to depend on things, money, bank accounts, savings, 401ks, etc., instead of the Lord. 
I think the demonic is active in our entertainment-saturated culture by encouraging us to think, I have to feel good all the time. I've got to find some way to, of entertainment. I've got to feel good. And the demons say, yeah, get consumed with that. I don't even have to show myself. Are there evil spirits at work in our culture? Absolutely. But God is greater. His power is greater. And he's at work setting us free to live for him and not for all these other things. To set us free from the power of addictions, the power of resentments, mental illness, etc., the things that consume us. Now, I want you to understand, I want you to hear very clearly, I'm not saying, oh, you have resentment in your life, well, then we just need to have a deliverance and cast out the evil spirit of resentment. Now, I know there's people that teach that way. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I think the Bible teaches very clearly how to deal with evil spirits, and Ephesians is one of the best books to look at, to study. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll see. He says, stand firm, put on the armor of God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. You don't have to do some big exorcism, but simply turn to God, trust him. He's already defeated the evil spirits. The power of God defeats evil. And the result is verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. I encourage you to read the story about that. It's about some Jewish exorcists that thought they would get in on the power of Paul, and they would try to cast out demons, and they end up getting beat up because the demon says, Evil spirit says, well, I know Paul, I know Jesus, but I don't know you, and so forget it, buddy, and beats them up. But that caused the fear of God to fall on everyone because they realized the truth, that Jesus is the real power. He has all authority. He has defeated evil. We can't manipulate him. We can't use him for our own ends, our own purposes. We need to submit to him as Lord. And then in verses 18 through 20, so many people were coming to Christ that evil was being defeated in people's lives. And it says that people who had all kinds of books of spells, magic spells, etc. Ephesus was known for these books. And it says they came together as their lives were being set free, as they were being changed. Evil was being defeated in their own hearts and lives. And they brought all these books and they made a huge pile and they burned them. And it says... It was worth, in modern terms, several million dollars worth of material. Notice they weren't burning some other religion's holy book, like some might try to do. (laughs) What they were doing was getting rid of the things that were keeping them personally from God. And that's a great encouragement to us. When the power of God begins to work in your life and convict you, expose your heart and you sense that he wants to defeat evil in your life, then turn to him in repentance like they did. And God may call you to get rid of something that you've been relying on and trusting in instead of him. I don't know what that is, but God does. And he can reveal that to your heart so that the power of God can defeat evil in your life, in my life, when we do that. And verse 20 Notice the end of the story there. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Churches were being established all through Asia. 
The seven churches of Revelation were established as the word went forth, as people carried the word and it was expanded. You see, mighty things were happening because evil was being defeated. Lives were being changed by the power of God. So when evil is being defeated in our lives, God's word is free to expand. Then fourthly, how is the power of God displayed in this passage? I think God's power changes culture. God's power changes culture. Verse 23. About that time there occurred this no small disturbance concerning the way, Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. Now remember, the temple of Artemis was a huge tourist attraction. I mean, it was a big money-making deal. Think Disney World. Okay? And people are coming to Christ and they're turning away from Artemis and they're going a whole different direction. And Demetrius, who makes little silver shrines, is really, really upset. Now let me give you a sense of the temple of Artemis. This is an artist's rendition of it. And this isn't even nearly big enough. I mean, the temple of Artemis, as I said, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet long, almost a length and another half of a football field. And it was 225 feet wide, so that's the width of a football field, another half. It was 60 feet high. It had a huge bank in it, biggest bank of Asia, of probably the Roman Empire. It had shrines everywhere. It was a huge tourist attraction, a big money-making deal. It was a mighty place. It took 120 years to build. And there were shrines everywhere that Demetrius and others were making of the goddess Artemis. This is a picture of her. She was seen as somebody who was a goddess of fertility. If you were going to have a child, you would come and you'd do offerings to her so that you'd have a healthy child. If you wanted a good business, if you wanted good crops, etc., you'd come and you'd do offerings. And there's good evidence that there were sacred prostitution going on, so you'd come and sleep with the prostitutes to be, have a fertile life. And this was the place that Demetrius was selling all these little shrines. People would come and they would take a little shrine like this and take it home so they could worship her in their own place wherever that might be. She was called Savior. So this was a huge deal, a huge money-making deal, a huge tourist attraction. And Demetrius is saying, man, people are coming to Christ and it's hurting our business. As Adrian said, it was a recession going on. This is bad. We've got to stop these Christians. <laughs> and so they had a huge riot. Next picture, there's a huge theater here holds 25,000 people. And it says that theater filled up and there was a huge riot and there was this uh, huge stadium, stadia they call it, this road coming in. It was filled with people. And let me read to you what happened. They were crying out with rage. They began crying out, Great is Artemis to the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater. Paul wanted to go to the assembly. They wouldn't let him. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. 
And then they started shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So imagine this. You just put yourself in this position. A huge stadium, 25,000 people. Huge riot. They're all gathered there and they start shouting in unison in this frenzy. Boise State! Boise State! Oh, wait, 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 no. (laughs) Shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There was power there. This was a huge anti-Christian rally. Now, how would you respond today? How do you think Christians would respond in America today if there was this huge anti-Christian rally? Well, I'm afraid some at least would, well, let's get our own rally and let's make it even bigger than theirs. Or let's write editorials. Or let's raise more money than they do. Or let's get the right people in office. Or let's change the laws so this doesn't happen again. Or let's... All of these things. In other words, how do we change our culture, an ungodly culture, for the better? An increasingly anti-Christian culture. But what did Paul do? Preach the word, love people, share the gospel, live out your faith so that the power of God gets displayed in you. And you know what happens? Culture is changed. Let me show you the temple of Artemis today. All that's left is this one column. And it's been rebuilt because it was buried underneath the ground. What happened to all this power and might of Artemis of the Ephesians? Who worships Artemis today? Well, there's probably a few weirdos that do, but it's basically gone. And who worships the Lord Jesus Christ? People all over the world in an expanding kingdom where God's power is being displayed and changed lives, exposed hearts, evil being defeated, and culture being changed. How? By people learning to trust God, walk with Him, the power of the Holy Spirit gets displayed in their lives as they use their gifts to love one another, to serve, and culture gets changed. That's God's way. America's been founded on Christian principles. It's true. But as we all know now, it's moving further and further from that Christian foundation. How should we respond? Have big rallies? Make sure we get the right people in office. It's good to vote for the right people, but the most important thing is for the church to be the church because that's where God's power is displayed. As we walk with him, follow him, share the word, the word has power, letting him change culture and change our lives. Is evil winning? It can feel like it, but it's not. The power of God has been released in this world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's power is at work all around us in changed lives, exposed hearts, defeating evil, and changing culture. So as we study this book of Ephesians over the months to come, may God use it to open our eyes to what God is already doing in us and all around us so we might be the people of God in a corrupt culture. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word, this encouragement to have our eyes open to your power at work right now, today, 
in us and around us. Give us eyes to see what you're doing and hearts that are soft so that we might trust you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.